Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hello and welcome to part five on an ongoing multi-part series regarding the updated Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs Memo from our friends at the Criminal Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. We have talked about the first four substantive sections of Part 1. We are now, uh, or three sections, rather, of Part 1. We are now on the fourth, which is Part D. Uh, You can find this on page 5 and 6 of the memo, and it has to do with those confidential reporting mechanisms uh, that have been around since... uh, the first uh, revision of 8B2.1B uh, of the sentencing guidelines, which uh, first talked about a system of mechanisms that allow for an anonymity and confidentiality uh, for reporting. Um, this, uh, if you were uh, looking to put together what the Uh, Department of Justice rather kindly in the past is called a paper program. Uh, One of the things you'd have, along with having a code of conduct up on the shelf uh, and uh, some sort of online training, is you'd have an anonymous reporting hotline. Uh, That's a a hallmark of a official, quote-unquote official, (laughs) compliance program. It's uh, become one of those pieces that you need to have in place whether you really have an effective program or not. Um, some general thoughts about uh, anonymous reporting hotlines, and we've talked about this before in, in this podcast, and it's something I talk about uh, when I'm on panels and uh, something I spend a lot of time talking to my clients about as they're designing or updating or evaluating their programs generally. Um, anonymous uh, systems have been around now for many years. Uh, most organizations of a particular size, again, I don't know what the threshold would be, but a couple thousand employees plus, uh, usually contract out with one of the you know larger organizations that offer a third-party solution for anonymous reporting, a hotline helpline in multiple jurisdictions, and some sort of database that they will provide to you where you can uh, you know manage those reports through the investigative process. Uh, that all is something that has really become uh, institutionalized, if you will. But uh, if you look at the data, and I'm going to, I don't have it right in front of me, but but, uh, I do know from past experience that the now uh, global business ethics survey that used to be the national business ethics survey that our friends at ECI put on every other year, um, consistently over the years has shown that the preferred method of reporting a concern is never the anonymous hotline. Hotlines are important. Don't get me wrong. Whenever I talk about this subject, I have to give that caveat. They're important. They're in the sentencing guidelines. They're in this memo. There's an expectation that you're going to have a anonymous reporting option. But the reality is that most people would prefer to talk to another human being. Uh, The most common place that people prefer to report is to their manager. Closely following that up is human resources or 
one of those um, back office um, options. And trailing on this list, usually in the single, single digits or low double digits, is the reporting hotline. This is an important thing to mention upfront whenever we talk about reporting hotlines, because just as it's in the sentencing guidelines, which have not you know, modified this in a long time, the sentencing guidelines are very short. And again, as I mentioned in the last podcast, and I'm going to have to mention uh, in every preceding podcast now, because I think I forgot to say it in the first couple, you need to consider a lot of these standards from the department and also from the sentencing commission as the floor. Because um, what I'm going to talk about here, uh, the rest of this podcast with regards to this guidance, uh, I think, you know, you're leaving out potentially uh, the vast majority of reporting that is going on. Now, some of the language in this section, I think you could read to broadly, uh, potentially broadly reflect reporting, and I'm using my air quotes, reporting generally, not just confidential reporting. Unfortunately, um, you have to kind of read it. <laughs> I don't think that that was the intention. I think that there is still this belief uh, from the department um, that uh, reporting is anonymous, anonymous reporting hotline. And organizations that have these anonymous reporting hotlines know that is not the case. It is, uh, if you have an effective reporting system, it's always the minority of reports that come in through your hotline. Now, you may use those tools that the organization, uh, if you are working with a third party, provides you, that database, that uh, incident management system, can be uh, used for any report that comes in, whether it comes in the hotline or through, through your front door or through HR or, or some other mechanism. Uh, so those tools are still usable for the broader group of re reports that you're going to get. But the reality is, the reality is, most of your reports should not be coming through your hotline. If you are not receiving a majority of your reports through other channels, through HR, through your managers, through the compliance program, through legal, um, through, through uh, these channels where uh, managers can escalate, uh, then you're missing some reports. That's just the reality. And in every survey shows this. So uh, uh, I want you, when you're reviewing this memo and other guidance, including reading the sentencing guidelines, understand that the anonymous reporting mechanism is an important tool. It's a, it's a tool that uh, the department and other regulators are going to expect that a mature program has in place. But in reality, it's not the end of the road with regards to reporting. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as I go through this. So confidential reporting structure and investigation process. It talks about how another hallmark of a well-designed program is an efficient and trusted mechanism to anonymously and confidentially report uh, 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 breaches of the company's code of conduct and misconduct. And it also states that um, this system should include uh, the complaint handling process and proactive measures to create a workplace without fear of retaliation, appropriate processes for the submission of complaints, and processes to protect whistleblowers. So in this first part, this first part of the paragraph, I think we kind of see where our friends at the department are coming from. Uh, 
the SEC for uh, and uh, has for a long time now, for several years now, had this um, whistleblower system in place. There's often a lot of concern, and rightly so, I think, around uh, protecting whistleblowers. Um, and that also comes from the department's experience uh, with whistleblowers in those cases uh, that often uh, arise from whistleblowers, which end up being uh, NPAs, DPAs, uh, other settlements, or actual prosecutions. Uh, and that's a limited number of cases of actual organizations out there. Uh, you know, as we talked about before, you know, we have probably literally millions of organizations out there. And uh, how many organizations every year end up uh, with an NPA, DPA, or being prosecuted, it, you, it, it's, it's hundreds, uh, a few hundred, probably uh, less than, in most years, less than 300 uh, that have actually taken a sentence um, or had, an, had some sort of settlement at that level that the department is dealing with. And so it's a very small sample, and this is really focused on that. And that goes to something I talked about in one of the uh, initial uh, introductory episodes is you always have to look at this through the lens of uh, criminal prosecution. Um, this guidance is primarily focused on organizations that um, are being evaluated uh, because there's uh, they're, they're making a charging decision one way or the other. And that makes it valuable again uh, to create a floor uh, for what is best practice, but it is not necessarily best practice uh, when you compare to other organizations and what they're doing with their mature programs. Because um, this focus on whistleblowers, again, the number of actual whistleblowers and the number of uh, uh, people that would fall into that category are so small uh, in the overall picture. Just as the number of people uh, who are going to avail themselves of the anonymous reporting hotline is smaller than those people that are wanting to report or actually reporting if you have an efficient system through other mechanisms. So you just have to keep that in mind when you're going through this. Uh, the other thing that they talk about here is uh, proactive measures uh, to create a workplace atmosphere without fear of retaliation. Uh, well, this is obviously very key. And we talk about this a lot, about how the most important thing you can do uh, to encourage people to come forward and report, whether that's through anonymous mechanisms or not, is to encourage them that they won't that any kind of retaliation won't be tolerated. You have to be careful about saying there won't be any retaliation because you can't guarantee that. Uh, but what you can say is that any retaliation won't be tolerated, and if you report, you will be protected uh, um, once you uh, uh, report that information. So. Um, that is a key piece of information, a key uh, acknowledgement about the importance of um, uh, non-retaliation. The last sentence of this first paragraph of Part D talks about uh, evaluating uh, the routing and uh, in follow-up investigation process once there's been a uh, report. And it states that uh, there should be an inquiry into whether there's uh, proper personnel, timely completion of thorough investigation, and appropriate follow-up and discipline. So how transparent, how consistent is your investigation process? How uh, consistent and transparent is the discipline process? We talked a little bit about this in the uh, last episode about how important it is 
to uh, when there is uh, discipline uh, to try to um, acknowledge that uh, in, to the organization as much as you possibly can without getting your employment counsel uh, uh, causing them to have a heart attack, um, but reasoning with them about um, re revealing important details uh, to the um, to the uh, wider organizations. So that's the transparency around discipline, anyway. Um, proper personnel, so resourcing around this, and uh, uh, you know, making sure that the uh, follow up um, investigation process is documented that you can justify your process, that your process is consistent uh, and, and effective. Uh, so um, I think most organizations understand that, but, but here it is in black and white. Um, then there is a second paragraph in the introduction here that talks about how uh, actually having confidential reporting mechanisms are highly probative of wh whether a company has established corporate governance mechanisms that can detect and prevent misconduct. And then they quote, uh, they, they cite the um, uh, U.S. Attorney's Manual. Uh, I, as I mentioned in the preamble here, I would quibble with that a little bit. Um, I don't know that it is necessarily highly probative of whether you have an effective reporting system simply that you have an anonymous reporting, uh, confidential reporting mechanism. Even if it's working perfectly, again, you should expect that the majority of reports are coming in through other channels. So if those aren't efficient and those are not resourced properly and people don't feel like that is an avenue they can go in, um, I don't know that that um, just the inquiry as around the uh, confidential reporting mechanism is sufficient. Uh, Again, this is kind of high-level, uh, very prospective reliance on an anonymous reporting mechanism to encompass the uh, reporting function at an organization, and that's just not consistent with the reality uh, that organizations face out there in the field, and I don't think that's consistent with any organization I've ever spoken to. Now, it is, I'm not saying it's not possible that you have more um, that you don't have more reporting on your anonymous reporting mechanism than you do having fil filtering up through these other channels. I'm just saying if that's the case, I highly suspect that there's something going on where you're not getting those reports or there's not proper resourcing or avenues for those reports to come up through HR or through the management chain. Um, and, and I think this is really missing the boat on, on reporting in a, in a significant way. But here it is. And then lastly, they, they actually cite in the second paragraph uh, the sentencing guideline section that talks about, uh, that, start, that kicked all of this off, that started an industry in, in anonymous reporting mechanisms. Uh, and, and again, it's important, but it's only part of the story. And then we have uh, four inquiries uh, that are relatively similar to the ones uh, that we saw in uh, 2017. There's one that's uh, a little bit more detailed. Uh, the last one, but let's go through these. First is effectiveness of the reporting mechanism. Does the company have an anonymous reporting mechanism? And how is the reporting mechanism publicized? Has it been used? Has the company addressed the seriousness of the allegations it's received? Has the compliance function had full access to reporting investigative information? To me, the important query here is the very last one. Has the compliance function had full access to reporting invest and investigative information? That's beyond the re anonymous reporting mechanism. 
Um, that is uh, reporting that's coming up through other channels. That's coming up through HR. That's coming up uh, through the management chain or, or other uh, areas where uh, reporting might be gathered. That is important. Um, and uh, you know whether you have an anonymous reporting mechanism or not is an important query, but I don't think is as important as that last question there. That's the one I would focus on if I were evaluating the effectiveness of a reporting a reporting system at an organization. The second uh, query has to do around investigations, properly scoped investigations by qualified personnel. How, how does the company determine which complaints or red flags merit further investigation? So you need to have some sort of triage process in place. How does the company ensure investigations are properly scoped? So you need to have an investigation protocol or process in place. What steps does the company take to ensure investigations are independent, objective, appropriately conducted and properly documented. That's resourcing and again, having uh, a methodology or, 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 or a, a protocol in place for your investigations. And how does the company determine who should conduct an investigation and who makes that determination? So who's ultimately responsible? Is there a division of labor where certain investigations are handled by HR and others are handled by legal or the compliance function? I think that's all fine. You just need to have some sort of methodology or process in place where that is uh, uh, determined in a way where there can't later be uh, the suggestion that somehow that is not fair or uh, reasonable or that uh, it's independent, objective, and appropriately conducted, as this language suggests. Investigation response, what's the follow-up? That's uh, an important question that you should have with any investigation. Uh, does the company apply timing metrics to ensure responsiveness? Uh, a lot of organizations do this. You know, uh, how many reports were made? How quickly did we address them? We determined that they were going to be investigated or not. How long did the investigation take? You know, how long till close? I see a lot of organizations that have these metrics. I don't think that's too much trouble with many organizations. They try to keep those metrics. Does the company have a process for monitoring the outcome and ensuring accountability to any findings or recommendations? So what's the follow-up? What's the process? Again, I, I think that would be part of any investigation protocol or methodology. And then the last query, which is a little different from 2017, which is resources and tracking of results. Are the reporting investigating mechanisms sufficiently funded? So do you really have uh, the resources behind your investigation and reporting um, uh, uh, functions? And that's not, again, to me, that's not going to just be your, uh, uh, your automated uh, hotline uh, materials, but, but your overall um, program. Uh, for reporting and investigations. How's the company collected, tracked, and analyzed and used information? So are you using this information for risk assessment purposes? Uh, are you tracking trends to make sure you're addressing issues that are being reported both on the anonymous uh, reporting mechanism and through other reporting mechanisms? Does the company periodically analyze uh, looking for patterns? Again, what are the trends? Um, so. Uh, Making sure that you're A, properly resourced, and B, tracking trends. I think that's those are two really important things. So this is the uh, total discussion around uh, reporting uh, here in the memorandum. Um, again, I, I feel like um, it's ignoring the, 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 the practical reality that most organizations face, which is if they have an anonymous reporting hotline, uh, it's it's the, the things that come in on the anonymous reporting hotline are uh, sometimes important, sometimes HR related, 
but but should be universally for most organizations, not the majority of reports and inquiries that they get. And so to me, um, it, this this merits another bullet point beyond the four that it has that asks some some questions along the lines of that last question in the um, uh, in the first bullet, which is uh, what's the access to those other um, reporting uh, systems that are in place. If you're in an organization where you don't aggregate and help and track trends based on data that's getting collected by HR, for example, then I, I, I don't see how you can have an effective reporting mechanism if there if, if HR and compliance aren't talking to each other and aren't uh, reviewing those trends and aggregating that data together because um, you're, you're not getting the full picture. Uh, people are going and reporting compliance concerns to HR in, in every organization over a certain size. That's happening. And if you're not getting that data, uh, then I don't see how uh, you can have an effective reporting system. That's my, that's my position. And I, I feel like, again, this is sort of a top-down look at uh, you know going all the way back to uh, 2004 and, and then 1999, uh, when the original organizational sentence and guidelines were put together and modified uh, and included this anonymous reporting mechanism because at the time, again, the focus from a criminal investiga investigations perspective and from a regulator's perspective is very often on that whistleblower. But that's just a very small percentage of what reporting and inquiry is going on in most organizations. And so I feel like, um, again, we gotta, we still have to look at this, and, and, and I have to pull myself back sometimes too. This is not a, a checklist for a, uh, a program that is best practices. This is the floor. This is, this is stuff that's, that you need to have in place, or uh, if your organization is ever investigated, you're not going to be found to have a program that's effective to avoid uh, prosecution. That's really at the heart here. Uh, and so that's important to keep in mind. Um, it's it's not always it's not always that clear, <laughs> um, but 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 it's here, and that's what we have to deal with. Uh, so uh, again, I want to thank uh, you for sticking with us we're, uh, through five of these. I, I anticipate we're going to have at least another five or six. Uh, I may try to consolidate some of these as we go forward because I feel uh, again some of the ones coming up here are really. Um, uh, really focused on third-party due diligence and on uh, a focus coming from the prosecution of anti-corruption cases that the fraud section was really concentrated on when they uh, drafted this initial memo in 2017, um, which applies to, and, and a lot of those tools apply to organizations broadly, whether you have high anti-corruption risk or not, but I don't think it's as salient uh, to, the broad, uh, um, to the broad group of organizations as um, just focusing on those quote-unquote hallmarks. Uh, so I, I anticipate another five or so sections here as we go through. Uh, I'm going to mention once again, once again, as I did in the last podcast, uh, my good friend Ryan McConnell and his team have put together a great comparison uh, of the two memos of 2017 and 2019, and I will put a link to his website where you can find that uh, in the show notes here. As always, please subscribe to the podcast. Please please uh, let me know if you have any questions or comments. Uh, and you can do so at compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com, or you can email me directly at eric at moreheadconsulting.com. Always like to hear from everyone. 
And so until the next part, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.